Oh, do you know what? I love the new theme tune, Ed. I can't, I can't tell a lie. I love it. So the other thing I love is what we've got to talk about on the show this week. I can't quite believe it, but we're here to discuss Manchester United smashing Man City to oh. tiny little pieces. Um, and uh, we'll preview the game against RZ Alkmaar. That's a might be a strong word and take a load of Twitter questions. But the main event, without question, this week, the Manchester derby. And uh, we couldn't work out a way that United would win this game in our preview, but it turns out we're idiots. Um, I mean, that is not a new discovery, I have to say. <laughs> um, well, and, uh, United won this, this game the literally the only way United could have won this game. So, so how was that? How, why, how, why, how, when, what happened? How did we win this game? Well, I mean, the ba- the basic plan was the way that United set up against o- almost any top o- opposition under Oli, which was to uh, set up with a low block and uh, break as quickly as possible um, with every transition. And um, I, th- I think United did it extremely successfully in that first half, helped um, certainly by City's softer underbelly, I think. I, d- I don't think they-, they actually, I mean, they, they-, they weren't, uh, susceptible to transitional um, counters uh, like that uh, last season, you know, hardly at all, and not least because they commit a ton of tactical fouls. Uh, the best tactical foul, of course, yesterday being Andres Pereira's tactical foul about three microseconds after he came on, but we'll come on to that in a bit. But yeah, United were just extremely successful in that first half at, uh, uh, at breaking on City and. Um, I, I, I was actually pretty surprised after I looked at the XG on this one because it's not that high, you know. So United got into some really, really good positions but didn't actually, from those really good positions, make the most of that to create great chances. That said, it felt like in that first half, if United had gone in at 3-0 up or 3 or 4-0 up, it, it wouldn't have been unfair. They were creating great opportunities and City just playing in front of United for that first 45 I think that a little bit in the first 15 minutes, actually, it was a bit more toe-to-toe than that. It was a bit like they were they were a whisker away from creating some pretty big chances themselves in that first period as well. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I was also a little bit surprised when I looked at the, um, the XG, but I think um, a lot of City's XG, of course, comes from the second half when they really put United under the cosh. And it's the kind of thing that they do so well which is generate an enormous amount of shots on goal of all different types, not just high-quality ones. But the thing they were lacking is high-quality chances because although their kind of cumulative XG is pretty high, it's a bit like us in some of the games where we didn't win earlier in the season. You made this point a number of times. It's like, yeah, lots of cumulative XG from tiny XG chances adding up. Well, well, that's right. Yeah, Apart from the goal, uh, City's highest XG chance is 0.31, Kevin De Bruyne's and and even that I think is just because of the position. It's one of those ones that doesn't uh, isn't really realistic, and it's based on the model because he's sort of falling backwards to try and diving header it, uh, if I remember correctly. And um, so yeah, you know, it's cumulative. And but it was just such a um, I mean really exciting game to watch, obviously. And the toe to toe was great in the first half, and United just countering constantly, and Rashford absolutely blistering, and and Dan James sort of doing what Dan, Dan James does best. Uh, Tom and A looked like you want to fight absolutely everybody. Pitch, stand, doesn't matter. 
Um, and Fred, like, spraying passes around. You know, I don't know what's happened to Fred, but he's completely transfer- transformed in the last month or so. Um, obviously, after the break, the game completely changed and United got deeper and deeper and deeper. And I think at one point you, you know, dropped into the... Uh, no question about that, WhatsApp group. Uh, Patreon tier platinum, I think, no. <laughs> um, and said, I can't see us seeing this one out. And it really did look like that. And especially as uh, Solskjaer did his thing of taking strikers off and putting midfielders on and sort of United were getting deeper and deeper and deeper. But in the end, in the end, defended it well, you know. And in those last sort of 10 minutes when it got down to the real squeaky bum time, I don't remember too many really big saves that Dave had to make. No, I mean, I think he made two really excellent saves. I think one from Mares. Um, which he saved with like a very good hand um, and a and a foot a classic De Gea foot save from someone maybe KDB at some point in that. But I, I agree. I kind of wanted to go through maybe just go through every player and talk about some of their best bits in that game because because almost everyone had some. I would say. I mean, I thought De Gea like he made a number of good saves. Of course, we have the thing that we know about De Gea, which is that he does not come for crosses at corners and and. It does leave us vulnerable because, you know, it's much easier to 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 set up an indefensible corner when you know for sure the keeper's not coming out. But listen, he more than makes up for that. Um, I mean, really, the net, the net benefit is substantial. The ball not going into the net benefit is substantial. Um, yeah. And, and by the way, I don't think the goal is his fault. He's not coming through that crowd of players. It doesn't matter who you are. Peter Schmeichel wouldn't be coming through that crowd of players. No, I guess I mean more sort of generally, like, it yeah, means you yeah. can set up in a certain way against United on, on set pieces. But listen, you're absolutely right. Um, so let's talk about the right back. Aaron Wall-Bissaka. A- a- absolutely unbelievable performance. The thing is, everyone's talking about this and rightly so. In the first 15, 20 minutes of that game, uh, Sterling had him on toast. Sterling absolutely skinned him early in that game a couple of times and... It well, Ed's Ed's holding up the finger, saying once. Um, it looked it looked to me like Wan-Bissaka was a little bit nervous even early in that game, and to me that almost makes the performance more impressive because from about twenty minutes in, he was imperious defensively, absolutely magnificent performance. Yeah, in commentary, Gary Neville made something of a similar point, but in a more kind of Gary Neville certain way that uh, Sterling's got the measure of him and uh, and he's uh, embarrassing Wan-Bissaka. I can't remember the exact words he used, but it was something along those lines, at which point I had to go and like work out exactly how many take-ons Sterling had um, had uh, created and try and try and work out whether this is true, because I just, to my recollection, I do remember him getting skinned once down the outside and Sterling pulled the ball back, didn't lead to a goal, um, obviously... And uh, I, I just I don't think there was much more than that. But anyway, you, you're you're right. He grew into the game and um, was uh, you know a real force um, as it as it went on. Luke Shaw on the other flank had a couple of um, moments early on as well, including one infuriating one where it was City that broke this time, and he's just ambling back with the ball going into his zone of the pitch and I'm like what what is going on you're just back in the team you now have some real competition I'm not talking about Ashley Young obviously for your position 
and you're not busting a gut in the the derby. Uh, I mean, like I don't I don't spend a lot of time on this podcast complaining about players not, you know, giving enough and all those sort of cliches. But that just looked like a player that that just not being professional about it, and that was driving me mad. But he he also grew into the game because I don't think they got at him in the way that. I expected, you know, with Bernardo Silva and De Bruyne sort of focusing down that side of the pitch, that's two really high quality players for for sure to to handle, and he, and he struggles to handle low quality players. So he, in the end, did all right. And then I guess take, let's take the central defensive partnership as a collective. They've come in from for a lot of criticism from us and lots of other people, of course, and and rightly so. I thought, barring a couple of moments like mostly with the ball ironically given how good they are with the ball I thought they were magnificent in this game I thought they occupied the space brilliantly they worked as a fantastic unit with McTominay who we'll talk about in a second but um a a number of times dealt with the City thing that City do of the kind of uh, dangerous crosses I I thought they dealt with them really well and there was a passage of play where I think uh, Lindelof got two headers on the ball in fairly quick succession, the same attack. I I, I just thought, I mean, I, I I always think of everything that I understand about football, one of the things I understand least is what central defenders are meant to do. And I do find it quite difficult to judge their performances. But to my untrained eye, I thought they looked magnificent. I mean, hardly put a foot wrong. 49 crosses City put wow. in. Wow. 49. I mean... Fair dues, they're not from deep areas punted into the box, a la United versus Fulham all those years ago. But I mean, the City are trying to work it into extremely dangerous positions, and I'm I'm sure a fair few of those are cutbacks from right on the uh, on the byline. But um, they 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 tried to pile the pressure. The the pass map is really interesting. For I mean, just take a look at this. Any anyone, obviously, we can't show you this because it's a podcast, but. Um, go and look in Stat Zone or one of the other um, uh, uh, stats packages that will give you the pass map. And uh, it's blue, 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 all outside the box. This is successful passes and red coming into the box, unsuccessful. I mean, and it just gives you a kind of flavour of just how well United did defend given the pressure. I mean, City, 588 passes to United is less than 200. I mean, it's uh, completely dominant in terms of possession, City. Um, United are in these games happy to be a low possession side, looking to break as quickly as possible and as directly as possible. Yeah, one of the- and and it didn't really happen as much in the second half, did it? United just weren't able to sort of get it into the channels. A few a few moments from Dan James, who did magnificently the whole game to to clear United's danger and clear the danger and and run into space and and just uh, like ease the pressure when when they could. When you could, yeah, absolutely, and um, the the we'll come on to the front three, and I guess talk a bit about tactics in in that part of the conversation because um, it, it's a real game of two halves in terms of the the kind of possession. United were really good at at stopping. I mean, this is another point that Gary Neville made actually that United um, were much better at getting beyond City when City were kind of mounting the pressure than most teams have been. Um, Gary Neville was actually putting it down to City being much worse at, at kind of stopping the counterpunch than they have been um, in the last few seasons. And I think that's partly true, but also I think it's got to be one of the hardest counterpunches to stop. And that and that all starts with the midfield. And, and uh, let, let's take them individually because they're very different games, but both 
standout performances in different ways. I mean, McTominay, my second note on this is just sick McTominay challenge in the box. Like there's so many McTominay blocks and challenges and stuff in 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 the notes that that I've written. I mean, the the amount of notes I'd written by the first seven minutes is ridiculous because it's just there was just so much happening early on. But but all in all, I, I, I mean, you mentioned him wanting to take on the entire stand at one point when when they were chucking stuff at Fred. He did look like he was going to try and start on all of them. Um, but we'll talk about that obviously because very ugly incident. Um, but yeah, brilliant performance all round from McTominay. Yeah, all energy, and this is the the best of McTominay, isn't it? Um, and all round midfielder giving United purpose in midfield. Didn't have a lot of the ball. I mean, to be fair, neither him nor Fred have made that many passes. Uh, they're positionally very sound. I mean, at one point in the second half. Ollie's screaming at them as um, McTominay started bombing forward, and which I kind of had sympathy for um, Ollie in that circumstance. You know, United are under so much pressure. Don't don't create the opportunity for the counter. Um, but uh, you know, all, all around a really mature performance from a player who's not played in that many of these really big games, McTominay and um, Fred. I, I suppose Fred hasn't played in too many really big games either. The Ukrainian league not really known for his intensity you know I mean, um you know McTominay's never lost against uh the the so-called top six top six yeah absolutely absolutely incredible statistic United have never lost against a top six opposition well the one of the other top six clubs um when he's been in the side he made uh four clearances in his own box Scott wow. McTominay wow and it just it just felt like he was there a lot and and you know um in a really functional well we've talked a lot we talked a lot um, after the Villa game about the lack of coaching in terms of the attacking side of it. But this team actually looked really well drilled defensively. They, they looked like they knew what they were doing as a kind of collective unit. And I guess a lot of that is about personnel because McTominay and Fred, you can do a lot more with than Fred and Pereira, obviously, in terms of their, their capacity defensively. Fred Fred was spectacular in this game. Spe- spectacularly good, I thought. Spectacularly good. Yeah, I mean, he did the things he had to do. I mean, he used the ball... Well, when United had it, not they didn't have the ball very much. Um, just two hundred passes in the game, as I said. So, uh, but when when he got it, I, he was spreading the play. Um, yeah, he was moving around the pitch. I thought he popped up on the right hand side and the left hand side, and um, you know he's just become a much more effective footballer. I, I still don't know that I see. A, Fifty-two million pound football. Well, right there. We've, we've got but. we've got a lot of we've got a Fred special in the Twitter questions, so we, we can come on to a more detailed um, conversation about where he stands in the uh, in the pantheon during that portion of the show. But just in terms of his performance, I mean, I made a note. Uh, he did this against Spurs. Uh, no, Villa against Villa, where we were really struggling to get out. I mentioned it on the show, and he, he did a really good piece of skill to get past the player, and there was. A moment again in this game, uh, shortly after Rashford had hit the bar, um, where he he kind of took um, took round took took the ball past someone and Lingard like nicked it off him and kind of ran with the ball, but shouldn't have done because Fred was actually getting himself into a, a good position. Right. So yeah, nineteen successful passes, which in in uh, normal circumstances would seem like really poor statistics and his normal sort of statistics, wouldn't it? But in the context of this game. Um, all all very sensible, yeah. Um, and then up front, I mean, you said, let's go through each of them. I, I thought they were all great. I mean, Martial, perhaps a less 
spectacular of the front three. I mean, do you think? I mean, he he did he he's done fine, but it's it's Dan James and uh, Marcus Rashford that were really really leading the um, the attack. I mean, I mean, obviously Martial scored, but I just mean in terms of United's pattern of play and the tactics was to get it into the channel as much as possible. Um, and uh, but they've all done they've all done you know super and and I guess you know we owe Dan James an apology because every time he gets the opportunity to prove that he's a better player than Bye-bye. um just some kid who came out the championship he's he's proving it and I mean it's still difficult for him to impose himself on games where he doesn't have that space behind I mean this was absolutely set up perfectly for to James for for James to show all his skills obviously. But he's still twenty what one twenty one. He's got a lot of time to add to his um, add to his game, and he's got a hell of a lot of determination as well. I mean, he supported Wampazaka on that right hand side all the time. I'm sure the right is not his favourite position, but he's doing everything necessary for the team there. So, you know, great game again from him. I mean, I kind of I kind of know what you're saying about Martial, but I sort of disagree. I mean, I think Rashford was very much. The one James was great, but the one standout in the in the forward line was Rashford, who is playing the best football of his career at the moment. Well, maybe the best football since like the first week of his career or something. Not that he's been bad since. I don't mean that. I just mean you know he started electrically, didn't he? But he's been he's been electric again. But like almost every one of my notes about um, attacking play features Martial in some way. Like the give and goes between Martial and James um, were really effective. Uh, just sort of time after time after time, he was he was there. He was involved in in the same way, and he had he had a number of shots. and And his goal, I thought, was absolutely superb, like a a superbly taken goal. That um, he had hardly any space to take the shot from, and he found a tiny little postage stamp corner that Edison basically couldn't get to. It was it was. I mean, if he did that on purpose, that was a masterful piece of centre forward play. Well, yeah, he's trying to he's trying to shoot it. I mean, clearly he's trying to hit that corner uh, of the um, of the net. So you know, fine margins and all of that, and inch the other way and it's out, and maybe an inch the other way and it's saved. Who knows? But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think my point really is that he's he's not actually that involved in the game. You know, fifteen touches all game. He's not that involved in a game. <laughs> so, but move. But um, his movement was. You know, we talked about this. His movement was bang on, like absolutely bang on. Which which he's been accused by me last week of um, of often not doing, and that was you know it was really nice. It was really nice to see. But let's talk more about Rashford. Um, his run to win the penalty. I mean, what Bernardo Silva's an idiot, by the way. What he was doing, making that talent. There was um, Fernandinho was right in front of Marcus Rashford. He was going nowhere. I don't think he was even in control of the ball. It was, when when Bernardo Silva was protesting to the referee afterwards, after the VAR decision, and he got booked, I was like, if I was City manager, I would definitely fine Bernardo Silva as much as I was allowed to for getting the yellow card for protesting that decision. Yeah, and look, it's made by VAR, so what's the uh, what's the point? The referee didn't give it at the time, and uh, it's a it's a VAR check, and I, I think. I mean, you make the point about control of the ball at full speed. I think you could probably make that argument at vast speed. You definitely can't, uh, and you know, even even so, you'd have to. That's a that'd be a huge call to say 
not in control, therefore it's okay. And I know you're not making that that argument. It is, by the way, the argument that Duncan Castles was making on Twitter, <laughs> absolutely losing the run of himself, Dang. which was which was kind of funny because uh, he he uh, got increasingly irate about um, various non handballs given the other way, uh, and didn't think this was a penalty. I mean, I, I think I, look if you're not giving that as a penalty, Bernardo on Rashford, you're not giving anything as a penalty. Yeah. It's, it's as nailed on as you're going to get, especially in the in the VAR era when they're going to slow it down. It's just obvious that there's a there's a foul there. Yeah, I wrote down in my notes, like, this is the most, as nailed on, absolutely the most nailed on penalty you'll ever see. It would have been an absolute shock if that hadn't been given. And you're right, especially slowed down, it looks awful. And Rashford, again, gets the keeper to move, really looked like the keeper wasn't going to move. And it, it felt like, actually, Rashford threw in an extra thing after his stutter step there was a little micro movement that sold edison um and i thought that was very clever indeed a high risk high reward strategy from marcus rashford and and he yeah i mean it was a nice little graphic came up uh, just before marcus was about to take it um number of penalties missed by united this season four number of penalties missed by the rest of the premier league Two. <laughs> we are top of the league. Say we are top of the league at yeah, missing penalties. Right. Um, but um, my fa- so yeah, no, it's it's nice that he scored two in two games. So two, yeah. two got a penalty last week as well, didn't yeah. he? So um, and and you're right, great run. United get a lot of penalties because they're bloody direct. Absolutely, you know, they're just super super direct, and um, it, it's it's going to be a good tactic this season. And it, it, uh, it, the other end, I mean, I, I guess we should talk about those. Um, you know, a couple of handball shouts that City had. Uh, one which uh, bounced up onto Lindelof. whose Lindelof. hand? Lindelof's hand, that's right, yeah. And I didn't think that was obvious because it's not... I mean, Castle's losing the run of himself over that one as well, saying it was twice handball. But he's in the natural silhouette, so Castle's needs to go check out FIFA. I think it's 14.2, I can't remember now. I might be making that up. Anyway, um uh, and then the other one um, was, who was it? wan committing Fred. himself? Fred, Fred, Fred. The the thing about those two, the Lindelof one was funny because United broke and counter-attacked and it really was that absolutely classic VAR scenario where if we'd scored, that goal would have been chalked off, but City wouldn't have got a penalty, which is beautiful and so strange. I don't, what would, what set piece would have been awarded under those circumstances? The goal just gets chalked off and it's a goal kick. Is that what happens? Yeah. Okay, great. Tremendous. Yeah, and it's it's an absolute, it's, it's a, such a mess, that handball rule now that you have effectively two different handball rules depending on the phase of play. So, Somebody called it Schrod- yeah. <laughs> Schrodinger's handball, which is like, that's, that's absolutely right. accurate. It, it's, it's nuts. And and the um, the Fred one, I, I mean, I... I Fred, always... Fred one is the dumbest conversation anyone's ever had. He tucks his arms behind his back so his hands are not going to get involved. And then as he's falling, his hand goes down to the floor to break his fall. Now, given that they talk about a natural silhouette, almost literally, that is the most natural thing a human can possibly do is reach out their hand to break their fall. When forensic pathologists examine bodies, they look whether they tried to break their own fall or not to get a sense of where they were at before they fell. This is insane the most basic primal human instincts honestly and then uh, Micah Richards was genuinely saying yeah he should have fallen on his shoulder like I, I think unless you're some like trained parkour expert who has 
worked your body to a state where you can control the muscle instinct to such perfect precision that your arm does not reach out for the floor. Your arm reaches out for the floor in that situation. And talking of crimes, uh, let's let's talk about Andreas uh, a second because I mean he had a very frustrating fourteen minutes, and but his first meaningful act was to absolutely hack down a City player. Was it Rodri and on the break? I can't uh, remember now. It was but, Sterling. Uh, Sterling, Sterling. Okay, and uh, just beautiful. And the, the 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 he didn't think twice about committing the crime. Uh, but the best bit was him throwing his hands up afterwards. It was like, not me, Gov. I didn't do anything. It really reminded me of, I think it was against West Ham where Rooney did it. And I was sat in the in the North Stand quite a long way off. And it looked to all intents and purposes like Rooney had fully like swung his leg as hard as he possibly could. Like a proper kind of martial arts move to take this guy out. And Rooney was actually sent off for that one. Because he, he got the tackle so badly wrong when he tried to get the booking. And it... Kind of looked a little bit like Pereira had gone too far with the uh, with the tactical foul. He, he, it's orange card territory for sure, that one. Um, very funny, though. Um, I wanted to say we were talking about Rashford and moved on to VAR chat before. Um, I just wanted to talk about the chip that hit the bar. I couldn't have wished anything ever had been a goal as much as I wished that had been a goal because it was at the end of a brilliant run and it was absolutely audacious and you look at it going what is he doing and then like oh my god that's what he's doing and then there was the one yeah there was the one that i, I mean it's sort of we call it a chip no, we, no it's, it's not a chip it's, it's a knuckleball no, it's, it's, a, it's a shot it's a low back lift shot but uh and yeah i mean that was a great piece of great piece of skill coming not that long after he'd um yeah the beautiful break from united um and he'd bust a gut to get into the perfect position and it'd just been a classic counter-attacking goal if he'd bent it around the keeper into the corner but of course he spooned it off towards the corner that was one where the wrong striker was in that position that's one where you want Martial to because because Rashford tried to do a Martial basically and that he tried to score the Toto goal but he he did not do that um but yeah it was fantastic and the movement for that and the through ball the whole the whole shebang it was it was just tremendous and it was everything that we've been saying United's attack isn't it was um incredibly potent unbelievably like in sync with each other just really effective really well supported by the midfield and it kind of ended at half time but in that first well there was a couple of incidents in the second half but it mostly ended at half time but in that first half they they just looked like the front three we all know that that front three could in theory be and and we we have to see them find a way to deal with the challenge of of a team that defends in numbers of course, but wow, they are great against a slightly vulnerable but good team. Like that is the ideal opposition for us to play. Unfortunately, it's a small segment of the yeah. uh, overall Premier League population. Yeah. That one, but, uh, but I mean, we haven't yet seen the 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 Plan B to that come to fruition very often under Ollie, and in fact, it's almost yeah universally the other way around where. Um, uh, teams in a low block um, are able to snuff United out and, and create chances themselves on the break. But, you know, we, we will take this one. Two fantastic wins in a, a week for United. And look, we, we came into the week saying he's in deep trouble. He's looking into the abyss. Uh, I, I think I made the argument that it, it was perhaps too soon to fire him because Woodward Woodward's going to take some heat if he's going to do it. But, you know, there's only so much pressure 
a club can take if United if United lost these two games, we'd be nearer the relegation zone than you know than than like European places. So um, it was you know not only massive because we've beaten a resurgent Tottenham, we beat Burnley five 0 yesterday or five one, um, and uh, and and City who you know while vulnerable are still City. So uh, it seemed very improbable at the start of the week. But just perfect results for United and for Oli. He's still talking a good game, saying, look, this is about United, not about me. But, you know, he needed it just as much as the club needed those two wins, you know. Otherwise, he'd have been in deep, deep trouble coming into Christmas. And, yeah, you know, you say City and Spurs, and that's obviously correct. Those are our opponents. But you can't shy away from the fact that this was Guardiola and Mourinho. This is the two big dogs of football management at Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, who was... Gonna get s- well. Two, two of the three big oh, yeah, dogs. Of course, yeah. Allardyce being the yeah. other. Allardyceo. Um The the um, the the kind of dominant, the predominant managers of our time in many ways. Um, Solskjaer giving him a right good schooling. Uh, very satisfying to see. Okay, it wasn't a right good schooling, but still, it was. He got his tactics extremely right and was very brave and, you know. All the way through the end of the Mourinho era, going on and on and on about how this is not the results. It's not the results that are the problem. It's the methodology. It's the approach. It's the kind of vibe. I'm, I am here for Oli Solskjaer good vibes. I mean, his, his post-match interviews and his press conferences are still, frankly, bordering on the annoying to me. Um, but I just love his relationship with the fans. I love the the sense of his relationship with the players. Um, and if... If, if, if he can get more right than he gets wrong, I'll back him forever. Like, I'm, I'm sorry to all the people that can't wait till he's gone. Um, I do understand and sympathise, but, you know, I can't, I cannot join in because of things that happened in the 90s, mostly. Yeah, and look, I think there'll be, uh, I'm not going to pretend for a second that this is some kind of uptick in United are going to go on a 20-match unbeaten run in all competitions and you know so on i i just i just think united is far too inconsistent mm-hmm. and and still as we've said uh, don't have an answer to to matches against opposition that just don't want to play and i think we'll find it out next weekend when everton come to come to uh, old trafford you know they've been a team that's been struggling and we'll, we'll do a proper preview of that in the in the the friday pod um but a team that's been struggling obviously just sacked their manager They've got new manager bounce, but they're not going to come out and try and play against United. And so immediately United will have the problem of of how do we actually play against a team that just doesn't want to attack. Yeah, and of course, you know, you talk about a 20-game unbeaten run. Uh, McTominay gets a cold over Christmas and that's gone out the window, you know, because the, the, all the problems of squad depth still exist in, in absolutely key areas. Oh, there was a f- very funny thing this week where... A tweet did the rounds that was some coverage of some transfer rumor that you know Matic was like wanted to leave in January and some something like the words was something like United have no objection to selling him to a rival, which is very very <laughs> funny. Well, yeah, no, City are a bit soft in the middle. Yeah. They'd like to take him on. Yeah, uh, you know, we've... and of course, um, we we can't leave chat about uh, the City game without sort of mentioning its impact on the the overall title race, which is. Which is significant for City. I mean, they're now, how many points behind Liverpool? 11, 14? Uh, it's 12, a huge they're amount. They're 12 points behind Liverpool. But, I mean, I think I think 
the main thing about this is just like if they can lose to us, they're going to lose games. Like obviously we were great in that. Yeah, second I know half, for sure. But... And and like I, I'm I'm not of the school that says, oh, you know, we've handed Liverpool the title. Uh-huh. Liverpool are doing that that from themselves by continuing to win every week, and and City are just much much more vulnerable because of their defensive injuries and having to shift around the midfield um, than than they were last season. So it's not about United, but obviously that was a massive blow to City. Um, and and Leicester are the you know I guess we're all behind Brendan now, aren't we? I mean, <laughs> oh, the Leicester. thing is, eight matches in a row they've won. I yeah. mean, you know, it's and in stunning, stunning, stunning performances from then again in style. I and mean, we, but you know, the, let's talk about the impact on the table in terms of us. We are fifth in the league now. Like we're we are five points behind Chelsea. Remember when I said it would only take a couple of wins and United up to fifth and you, you laughed at me, Paul, you mocked me and derided that point. We're only one goal difference worse off than Chelsea as well. So, hey, listen, if we can go on a run, which is a, a massive if, of course. But I thought you were going to say we can't leave this City game without talking about the stuff that happened in the corner with Fred um, and Jesse Lingard. Uh, as if it's not disgusting enough that people are throwing lighters and uh, coins at, at United players. Again, by the way, like that we talked about on the backers content last week, we talked about the 3-2 against City and Van Persie scored and Rio got hit with the coin in that one. Um, I thought that was w- the worst of what was happening. But of course, it's 2019. So uh, there was racial abuse too. a guy clearly doing monkey chants. The, the one thing, there's two things I wanted to say about this. One, we had a... We had a question, um, we had a, a Twitter question come in um, from uh, from at figure nine, David, who says, is Gary Neville welcome back on the pod now? And yet... Yeah, yeah. well, no, I mean, sound, sound point Neville made, I think, you know, in which he said, effectively, like, Precy, it's being enabled by the culture of our times and the politicians we have. And, I- um, and that's, it's absolutely, he's absolutely, he's absolutely right. I mean... You know, aside from Farage, who's you know looming large in the the election, which is coming this week, um, uh, you've got Boris Johnson, who uh, is an Islamophobe out in the open, and and Corbyn, who has been called out by an entire community of Jewish people, leaders, and you know ordinary people to say that you have not done enough. You know, so uh, about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, right? So it, it is enabled from the top, and people feel completely open to and and look maybe that dude without all the politics would have been making uh uh you know monkey gestures anyway but we, we can't deny there hasn't been an uptick in this in England and around Europe and and you know we've called Gary Neville out time after time after time for a kind of little Englander mentality often in various different ways and I thought this was exactly the opposite of that because he specifically said you know, we have a go at the Bulgarians when it happens in Bulgaria. The Corriere del, Corriere del Sport headline, which was like Black Friday, I think, uh, uh, because Smalling... Yeah, with Lukaku and Smalling I mean, on the front and, cover. And they yeah. were banned by, I don't know if it was Milan or Roma, whichever club they were, they were banned from covering it. And I thought, it, the, I mean, Lukaku spoke eloquently about this and, you know, it was it's heartbreaking that this is happening, but um, it's heartbreaking it's happening around Europe. But Gary Neville was absolutely right. We have a massive problem with this in this country. I do think we also have a particular problem with it in football. I think um, it's important to say that whilst it is a massive social issue, it is also a football issue because even in the response to this, I did see a number of United fans 
saying things along the line of, oh, look at what they are like, meaning City fans. Well, it was six weeks ago that a United fan was ejected from the stand for racially abusing Trent Alexander-Arnold, which I don't think we even mentioned on the show because the story broke. Oh, I didn't see the story till after we'd recorded about the Liverpool game and it had gone out of my mind till next next time. I mean, he was uh, reported um, by... Uh, by United fans to the stewards and was ejected during the game, which is slightly different. But there's no room for a tribalistic tit for tat in this. This is not a. This is we're all as bad as each other on this one. No, no, right. You can't. You can't be anti-racism against only some forms of racism, right? It's 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 all or you're a racist. So um, let's just be really clear about that. I mean, this was a really visible, disgusting incident, and it was kind of compounded. Like not only the two guys, you know, jumping around in their seats, um, and apparently other incidents that have been reported, but the the coin and the lighter throwing as well, just to make it doubly ugly. But I, I'm not going to pretend that um, there aren't racists amongst United fans. Quite clearly, mm-hmm. you know. And one other thing I I want to say about this, which which is, it might just be a Twitter thing, but um, I think people calling out Raheem oh. Sterling as if somehow he should. He should now carry the torch for all anti-racism because he has very eloquently talked about this in the past. And now it's come from City fans. He's somehow a hypocrite for not calling it out quickly enough this time. You know, he he doesn't have to bear that pressure. No. Um, at all. No one else was saying anything when Raheem Sterling was. So, I mean, he, he, is, the, he is the player amongst all who has done most to raise this as an issue and say enough is enough. So, you know... No, no pressure from us on Raheem Sterling. I think that's entirely wrong-headed thinking. The, the, the thing that really got me was like um, people were talking about him not going over when Silver and someone else went over to the City fans, but they weren't going over to stop them being racist. They were going over to try and get them to stop throwing things. It's very likely that nobody, maybe even the United players, it's very likely nobody even saw that because everyone was being distracted by a bunch of idiots throwing stuff at them. And like wondering whether they, you know, one of it was going to be worse than a lighter kind of thing. Well, that's not bad enough. But the um, the, the the Sterling thing, the the one thing that I mean, I I have a lot of empathy with him because I think he was in an intolerably difficult position here. But when Guardiola stuck up for Bernardo Silva, Sterling kind of played it down a bit. But I feel like um, having a massive pop at him for that is to really lack empathy for what a difficult situation that is for Sterling because, you know, you just hope somewhere someone's had a word behind the scenes. But, but anyway, listen, enough, probably enough of, of us banging on about this, but just couldn't, can't ignore it. And and yes, Gary Neville's ban is definitely lifted until he says something else ridiculous. Yes. Um, all right, I think that's enough for City. I think uh, we'll take this short break and take some questions from our good listeners. Enjoy no question about that. If so, let others know about us. The best way to do that is leave us a review and a rating on iTunes and hit that subscribe button. That's one of the most stupid questions I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> test my patience. All righty, Paul, you're in charge of the Twitter, Twitter RT this time round, I think. Yeah, I mean, you said that's enough of City. I feel like we made, we did a lot of analysis and a lot of um, like chat about stats and like breaking down what happened and then like super depressing conversation at the end. Worth saying, oh my God, that was good. Oh my God, it was fun. Like, ah, oh, uh, how, I mean, that is as much fun. That first half was 
electrifying like just so exciting so anyway let's uh let's just put that fair enough uh, are, are our listeners electrifying <laughs> yeah they are uh let's uh let's do what i like to call the hashtag fred special at wheeler 55 joe wheeler says should we read too much into the fredemption at chris mufc 08 saying where do we put the fred statue and at ojana uh laconius on twitter saying have united fans as a collective ever been as wrong before as we have been about fred i mean darren fletcher says hi but uh, yeah, I, I am reading too much into the Fredemption. I think he's Kevin De Bruyne incarnate. Yeah, he's not. <laughs> he's definitely not. We'll, we'll look, we'll see. He he had a good game against Spurs. He had a good game um, at Norwich, was it? He had a good game against City. He's had a few good games in the last month or so. And and I guess he, United had to play him. And, and maybe he's just not had that many games in a row. During his time at United and and with Pogba being injured and McCominay for a while, he had to play. So um, maybe this is the big break he needed in order to to really show the Fred that um, you know Kieran McKenna really loved and wanted. I mean, it is entirely possible that Fred will go through a period of being really good for a bit. Now, I think I don't see why there's any reason not. I remember when Nani first came to the club, really really struggled, and then when he hit form, he was completely electric. And I think the run of games thing is absolutely massive because this is a man who's managed by Jose Mourinho for a season. Like, there is very little that's as bad for your emotional well-being as being managed by Jose Mourinho in a bad mood. So, like, maybe it's taken a year to shake Mourinho off and he's um, he's starting to feel his oats, but he looks so confident on the ball. Like, just trying stuff, incredibly well-executed precision through balls, which is the thing that he hasn't been doing. I mean... His shooting was wild against Villa. Um, so that that hasn't... It's not all there yet, but I don't know. Given where he was at two months ago, it's kind of remarkable that we're talking about two... And then against Spurs, like I said last week, he, Rashford was man of the match, but Fred was running him close for that for that position. Mm. Yeah, we'll see. I'm, I'm not... Um... I'm not anointing him the next uh, David Beckham or anything like no, that. Just no yet. statue. Um, Andy McCoy at Mac Attack saying, "What's Pereira's best position? Real Sociedad on, on the bench. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yes, anywhere but but in the team. Yeah, we need to move on, and and surely he will be moved on. Honestly, when he came on yesterday, I did a proper like head in hands. Oh no, and I hate feeling like that about, especially a, still a relatively young player, but not relatively young in the sense of like. Uh, he's got a massive, massive amount that he could grow from here. I mean, the thing is about Pereira is he's had a run in the team and it's been the same or worse. So I, I think we we kind of know we know what we would get from him. The one position he has not played at all is, of course, the position he used to play a lot was wide forward. Um, but he, he doesn't seem to be one of those anymore. No, he's not. He's not really been... I don't know whether the word trusted is the right one there. It just given given where United have players and don't have players, he's he's ended up playing at ten or in a three man midfield almost all of the time and, and he played pretty much off the left all of the time in, in the reserves at United and, and a lot of the time he was in Spain as well. So it, that might be where he's more comfortable in cut inside and shoot. But I think the kind of raw components of what we've seen from Pereira, it's, it's, it's not good enough. And I, I, I'm pretty confident, but, you know, I'd love to be proven wrong, but I'm pretty confident in saying now we've seen quite a lot of him. 
that he's uh, he's not really going to, as soon as United start buying better midfielders, or shit, that's a big assumption, <laughs> a really big assumption, but if United buy some better midfielders, then then he's on his way out. Um, at Miles A. Bailey, Miles Bailey saying, are our issues with lesser sides down to confidence or tactics? When Ole arrived, we beat smaller sides easily, 5-0 Cardiff, etc. Maybe it's just since Barca outclassed us in spring, we lost belief. Perhaps beating both Jose and Pep in three days will restore that belief. Oh, I like the idea of that. I'm not sure it's... I think that it has... I mean... I've thought that United have had a problem with collective confidence for a very, 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 very long time, going all the way back to particularly the second Van Gaal season, all the way through the Mourinho era. You know, I I asked Mourinho about this once and he did not answer the question. They're good when they're playing well and they collapse very quickly. We saw this against Spurs. They fell to pieces against Spurs after Spurs scored. I mean, fortunately, half-time was right around the corner. And even against City, I, or we did defend. I don't think it really happened against City, to be honest. I think we we held our nerve and our, but I think the derby atmosphere really helped with that. So I I do think it's about the fact that there isn't really a methodology, and that is really negatively impacting on the confidence of the players who would need to execute whatever methodology there was. Yes, and um, you know, at the risk of uh, being revisionist around the uh, the the narrative of the Great Ollie Revival. There weren't that many good games under Oli. Honestly, that 5-0 is a freak. He came in, everyone was like, you know, relieved to get rid of the the uh, the, the captor and um and they were you know released and, and went wild against a really crappy side. So um apart from that, United didn't put in an awful lot of good performances and the best ones, Spurs away, Paris away, were exactly the same pattern as this, you know. Sit back, low block. Very narrow, break quickly. Paris away also, calling it a good performance is probably, like, generous, isn't it? You know, it was a beautiful miracle. La La Remanctada. But, you know, it it was, I don't think it was a good performance. So, yeah, I mean, for me, the two things go hand in hand. The confidence and the tactics are kind of really intertwined. And I, I do think, and if they can't get a confidence lift from the way they've played in the last two games, I mean, we've seen, by the way, just talking about individual players, Marcus Rashford is playing with incredible confidence as an individual, and that's kind of lasted through good games and bad in the last the last run of games. I mean, he is on absolute ridiculous fire in terms of goals and assists over the last 10 games or something. And if you give him the Villa goal that he deserves, um, it's even more impressive. Like, he's barely not scored in a game. Complained on Twitter. I like that. Yeah. I like to see that. I like to see Marcus Rashford being aggy about not getting his goal. Um Oh, that's right. He, I mean, I'm like, yes, it's an own goal, but he really should get it. Uh, this is kind of related. At Quatchit says, why do people continue to predict people, me and me and you, Ed, um, continue to predict doom against good teams when our team's actual strength are best exposed against big teams? Uh, these two wins are not much of a shock when you look at how we play against teams that will give us space. I, I think that's true. I just think it's, um, it's hard to imagine that. It was hard to imagine that Spurs game even with all that, those caveats after the game against Villa in terms of the absolute abject nature of United's performance. And that wasn't about right. not being able to break down a deep-lying team. That was about being rubbish. So that was... that was As well as not being able to break down a deep-lying deep team. I mean, look, I think he's got a, a point in... T- I mean, we've made the point. Yeah, it, Yes, it's absolutely true. 
that uh, United are better set up for these games than um, than uh, against the bottom half uh, of the division. But, you know, City are a lot better than United man for man, typically. That's why they've scored in their high 90s points the last few seasons and United have not, <laughs> not anywhere near, you know, like 30 points behind the season. So there's a big golfing class. 81 Yesterday, 81 points. City's weaknesses, Respect. United's strengths all came together for a fantastic victory. Sorry, I interrupted you there, Ed. 81 points. Respect. 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 <laughs> no respect. He can't get no respect. Um, a great question from friend of the show, at AB5Y. Watch me crank that Solskjaer boy, which is one of the better Twitter names. Um, irrespective of results, one undeniable trend over the last month and a half has been the sheer volume of goals scored. And this is a really good point especially talking about the difficulties we've had breaking down deep-line defences. Since Norwich, United have scored 21 in 10 games in all competitions, 15 in 7 in the league, scored 3 in 4 different games. Thoughts? Absolutely brilliant Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I think it's partly, I mean, p- partly circumstance uh, on this one. I mean, not entirely. Obviously, United have been taking chances when and hadn't been taking the chances earlier in the season, but Norwich played a suicidally open game then we had what partisan complete rubbish brighton you know open as yeah, well yeah we scored early in that one and that made the difference sheffield united one was a bit freaky because actually we didn't create loads of great chances against sheffield united except for that really short period of time um yesterday yeah set up for us nicely and and spurs um i mean spurs different game different game played played well in the spurs game or at least uh, played you know sort of physically dominant in the, in the Spurs game, so I think there's it's, there's a lot of circumstance, and you can kind of read between the lines and explain why. I wouldn't necessarily say I think, given the amount of shots United take to the amount of goals, that we're going to go off and score at a rate of two a game from now until the end of the season. No, but but the but I think it would be a mistake to just say this has been a freak. Also, because what not that I'm saying you said it was a freak, but it's it's not like a wild statistical outlier. And and it has a lot to do with the front three being really effective. You take that Sheffield United game in isolation. Like the thing about that seven minutes was the front three caught fire, and that really was what happened. And the the front three, Lingard too, but mostly off the ball, as we know, um, were absolutely phenomenal in terms of their individual performances in the first half of that game. The front three were really great against Spurs. A different front three, but still really great. And and so you have this situation where we know they're immensely talented forwards in this team who can score really big numbers of goals, but the structure isn't there. And also they are all still young, so there's, their form's going to dip in and out a bit more than they would if they were two or three years older than they are and had played together as a unit and played in the positions that they played and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I think it's the the incredible talent that they have that's, and the fact that, you know, the midfield's given them a platform in a lot of these games. So those are the kind of positive ends of why we have, as a, as well as the the kind of defensive errors on part of the other teams. All right, should we take one more question and then move on? Yes, let's do that. So uh, the final question from a friend of the show, at Benny Hudson, is Everton at home a big enough game for us to actually perform or is it going to be another flat performance? Good question. No big, idea. Big, no big idea. Duncan Ferguson I, I, coming back. Like he was a big game player for yeah. them against us, wasn't he? He was. I, I thought the hilarious thing. I mean, obviously, it was so predictable they were going to beat Chelsea, 
uh, one, two, played a straight up four four two in that one. Well, I mean, we haven't seen that in the Premier League for about a decade. <laughs> well, I mean, we haven't seen that in the Premier League since Leicester literally won the Premier League with it two seasons ago, three seasons ago, whatever it was. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll do a preview of that after Alkmaar, yeah. and uh, I guess we'll take a quick break and we'll talk about Alkmaar. For ad-free versions of this podcast, consider backing us. Head to patreon.com slash nqatpod. Uh, so, RZ Alkmaar coming to town on Thursday. We said that one of the things that we would do when we went to two shows a week is more in-depth previews. This show's been going on for well over an hour, and uh, I don't have anything useful to say about this game sorry the Europa League does not no, count they weren't particularly good when we went there it was one of the dullest games of the season nil nil and uh yeah it was just <laughs> really 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 bad performance from United uh over in Alkmaar but pretty bad from the home side I expect United will make a lot of changes because why not I mean I I guess I, I guess we'd like to win the group so we don't get one of the teams that are dropping out of the Champions League because in theory that would be a tougher side. Um, so, I, you know, but I'm sure Oli will make a lot of changes anyway. Yeah, I think I heard something somewhere saying it was done who was top of the league and I couldn't work out why that was. Um, but I, I heard someone talk about the, the game where we played the kids there as a dead rubber because we were already guaranteed to go through as group winners and I didn't think that was true at the time. But maybe it is, and I've just done the maths wrong, which is entirely possible. Um, rather than doing a uh, an in-depth preview of a game against a team that Louis van Gaal managed once, um, I just want to add a Twitter question that came in late. Uh, Alan McDonald at Al B. McD saying, George Best, Eric Cantona, Ruud van Nistelrooy, Ryan Giggs, should how hairy are his arms be one of the key metrics our scouting network uses? It is a really solid point. So very some of United's absolute greats have been deeply hirsute gentlemen. Very good. Uh, United on ten points, Almar on nine, so we can definitely oh, yeah, not finish go. top yeah, of the group. Clearly, yeah. Um, but we're definitely qualified. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think I suspect it will be a stronger side than the one that played. Well, I don't know about stronger actually. Uh, 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 more more members of the first team squad in it side than played against uh, Astana because. It doesn't have the component of the travel and and interrupting the schedule in that way because two home games on the bounce. Um, yeah, and that's about all the preview I've yeah, got. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think I suspect you're right. I think there'll be a lot of changes, but yeah, perhaps a, a few a few more senior players than eleven changes because they'll be taking a big gamble. Given that there is a champions place open for winning this this tournament. Yeah, absolutely. And and potentially, in fact, actually. Um, we haven't talked about this. We'll, perhaps we'll do a backers pod on this, but the Club World Cup is moving to 24 teams from 2021. And it looks like UEFA will award one of the spots. It, they're going to get six spots, I think, six or eight spots, something like that, uh, to the Europa League winners this season. Know. You know, And it looks like to be extremely lucrative as well. Are so. we going to kill the FA Cup? Are we going to murder the magic of the FA Cup? Are we going to take the magic wand owned by the FA Cup and slap it in front of... It's crying child eyes. Is that what we're going to do? I think so, yeah. But we already did that, remember, you know, when uh, United manager Tony Blair decided that we wouldn't be playing in the FA Cup any longer. Unbelievable. That is, that is one of the greatest myths in the history of sport, that is, that that's our fault. We did them a favour. We did them a favour and this is the thanks we get. Anyway, 
You should probably have got over it by now. Uh, but like many things about the Tony Blair government, I am not yet over it. Um, <laughs> well, look, uh, in the meantime, um, you can sit back and listen to this interview I did with uh, Omar Chowdhury, who's um, one of the founders or director of football intelligence, I think, at um, uh, 21st Club, which is an analytics firm that looks at the transfer market. And this is pretty interesting. I thought their, their kind of take on how they use data is not the way that we normally talk about data on this show, which is on the pitch, but it's one of the areas that's fast developing. And and fans of Football Manager 2020 will be like, yeah, I, I knew this already. This is Omar. So um, Omar Chowdhury with me from 21st Club. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Omar. And I, I just thought we'd start with the basics, really. Um, give me the pitch. Sorry, it's a bad pun, isn't it? On um, First Club, uh, what the company's about and uh, what you try and solve. Sure. So 21st Club uh, is a strategic advisory business uh, for football clubs. Um, so we help teams with mid to long term strategic planning issues. So anything from head coach hire to player recruitment, succession planning, youth development, anything really around the football operations of the club. Uh, and we've been going for about six years now, working with a range of clubs uh, across Europe. We've expanded recently into to Asia and the Americas as well. Uh, and a, a big part, I guess, a core part of our DNA is, is using data to try and identify some of those inefficiencies that exist uh, for teams, leagues and, and associations. Um, and so my role within the business is head of football intelligence and I lead up uh, the data analysis team within within the business. And uh, I guess we try and, as much as we can, uncover some of the truths that might exist about uh, about world and, and European football. Right. Yeah, great. I think one of the really fan, fascinating things about this, uh, this area uh, for me is that I, I guess um, football fans have become increasingly familiar with um, terminology around uh, analytics models um, on the pitch, you know, the XG model and, and its various variants and stuff like that. But I think what happens behind the scenes is still really opaque. Mm-hmm. Um, so how clubs make decisions on buying players in the in the digital era, um, why they still make so many mistakes, why the, um, why the market seems so inefficient. So <laughs> if, if we had better information, clubs wouldn't make so many mistakes. It seems to me. So, uh, and I guess you're a, a consultancy trying to fix some of those problems. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you say if clubs had better information, they wouldn't make as many mistakes. I think it's clubs have so much information now, right? They've got so much data on all the players, so much videos and these scouting reports, you know, but, um, information on players' personality, social media, and so on. And actually, I would argue there's a case that there's too much information uh, for the clubs to digest at the moment, and it's a case of trying to find insight from it. And that's the real challenge. That's what we try and do as a business. So we try and work out what is important, what isn't important. Um, and so, so you take really basic things. So even like a data point, like the amount of experience a player has in the Premier League. So a lot of clubs we speak to, like go, oh, we, we look at this player, we think he's really good and he's got Premier League experience. So that'd be like a, a tick in his box. Uh, but actually, if you look at the data, Premier League experience, once you account for a bunch of other things, actually isn't predictive of how well a player is going to do in the Premier League. Okay. And so it's things like that that we try and uncover and, and solve for clubs. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I, I mean, if you uh, look around the 21st Club site, it, it's very visual, some of your products, isn't it? Dashboards. And and something that would be very familiar to, say, executives in businesses across sectors. So the, the kind of BI approach to, to displaying analytics as something an executive can make decisions from. 
Exactly. Yeah. So we mostly work at, at boardroom level or director of football level and above. And so it is very much a case, particularly at ownership level, of trying to get a snapshot view on your club. Um, you know, there is so much football's got so much noise, right, and so much emotion around it. If you're if you're the CEO of a company that works in, I don't know, mining or in coal or in energy or whatever, um, you know, that you haven't got a particularly strong opinion about it. Probably you haven't got all this emotion that that you have every few days about about your industry. But as a CEO, you've got the fans, you've got the media, you've got podcasts like yourself who, who are airing views on um, on the game. And you've got to be able to try and get some objectivity through that uh, and couple that with the football expertise that you have uh, within the building. Uh, and so that's, yeah, the tools that we have and the consulting projects that we do try and try and tackle that. And do you collect the data yourself or are you using third-party sources and then then pulling that together into to the insights that you're providing? Yeah, so we, we use third-party data. We kind of see ourselves a little bit as a, almost like a Bloomberg of, of football um, in a way where we're not actually collecting our own data. We work with third-party providers. Um, and as you know, there's a lot of, a lot of data out there uh, at the moment, but we work with uh, companies like StatPerform who collect great data, uh, but we also take some from from online sources and try and mesh it all together into coherent insights. I guess one of the interesting questions, and maybe this is an obvious question, is where do you see the balance between clubs using data and using uh, older forms of data collection, you know, scouting networks and an intuition of a coach? Um, and uh, are you still running into the money ball problem that people don't <laughs> believe this or have we moved past that as an industry? Uh, I think people. I think we've moved past people totally rejecting data as a you know a useful thing to have in um, in football. If, in fact, uh, the moneyball thing that comes up quite a lot, and I, and people often say, oh, the challenge between baseball and football is that baseball is a closed sport, and so it's much easier to analyse um, stats in that kind of closed environment versus football, which is much more fluid. Uh, my view actually is that the main difference between football and baseball isn't so much open and closed. It's actually that you've got uh, different leagues and different qualities of leagues and teams. And so if you're watching a player playing in Poland or in Switzerland or in the Netherlands, it can be really hard either by eye and by data trying to assess how um, how players might transition across leagues, which is obviously a big part of, of player recruitment. Um, and so, you know, you need to be able to combine the research element from the data and the models with with the eye and the scouting. I think more, more, more and more clubs are there, but I think... As I mentioned earlier, I think there's just so much information from both sides, from both the data and the scouting side, that ultimately you need, clubs need to be able to do some sophisticated analysis in order to understand what actually is important in all that information that's been collected. Mm. And there's um, CIES put out a report, uh, basically using, a, a, a kind of, I guess, a similar methodology to, to assign transfer values to players and... Uh, and you know, I, I guess there's some there's some element of um, science there and some element of art. Um, are we moving towards a a world in which there's the market is less opaque and it's it's easier to say, well, this player is worth this value and and that's what we're paying or we're prepared to pay this premium on top of on top mm. to get that player and and it's there's more science to that. To a degree, yes. I think I think the next stage for clubs is actually trying to work out what intrinsic value players have to their team, and I don't think anyone's quite there yet. Um, you know, the way the market works is that actually for a long period of time, the amount of net spend, for example, in the Premier League 
has been pretty consistent as a proportion of revenues. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty much hovered around kind of 14 to 17% for a number of years now, uh, where that, that's the amount that clubs spend in transfer fees. But, but one of the things that we've been trying to work on is can you quantify the points value of a player? Because right. when you can do that, you can turn that into a revenue value. And then you can begin to go, okay, well, if he's contributing this much in revenue to us above a replacement player, then that's his actual true intrinsic worth to a team in terms of market value. Um, and I think, I think one of the things that we were, I guess, when we were doing our research, a little bit surprised by, and, and people are surprised by when we talk to them, is that players are in general worth less than you think. Um, so if you, take, if you take the top team in the league in any given season, historically, normally they'd win around, let's say, 1995 points, uh, whereas teams in the relegation zone would typically win around 35 points. So the gap between a top team and a bottom team in a league is roughly 55 points. And if you've got 11 players in a team, then the average player between a top team and a bottom team is roughly five points per season. Uh, so if you, took, if you took like a Harry Kane out of Spurs or you took a, I don't know, Mo Salah out of Liverpool, then you're only talking about typically a team losing, say, three or four, maybe five points a season. And we saw that last or the other night with, uh, with Liverpool um, against Everton, right? They weren't playing a particularly strong team in their front line, but they, they actually did uh, pretty well. They won the game 5-2, mm-hmm. which is probably in line with what you might have expected had they had their normal front three. And so when you, when you do that assessment, you begin to realise that actually there's an opportunity for clubs if they realise that their top players might, not be, might be worth more in the market than they are to their own team. And so you're right. able to sell them for a premium. And, and that's, type, that's the type of problems I think um, clubs are beginning to try and solve. Right. And, you, and you'd, I guess you'd expect that to come first from mid-ranked teams that use the market as a revenue generator for them. And so if they can um, bring in the right kind of players using the right kind of data, flip them to a bigger club, um, that's, uh, which, which is a model, of course, you know, Lyon and Ajax mm. and, and uh, a range of those sort of mid-ranked clubs throughout Europe have, have um, played over the years anyway. Um, do, do you see, um, is there then a transition for the bigger clubs where they can be smarter about money? I mean, obviously, we've seen, um, we're obviously United fans on this podcast, and uh, we would argue that um, over the last few years that uh, United have perhaps not used their money wisely, whereas uh, down the road at Liverpool and, and at City, it feels that they have used their money. Not only have they got a lot of money at City, but they used it extremely wisely. So um, is, there, is there a transition amongst some of the bigger clubs to, to being very data-centric and perhaps changing their transfer strategy as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the, the kind of the use of strategic thinking and data cascades right from the top all the way down through the game at all levels. And it is still relevant at the top of the game because, you know, we've seen clubs, no matter how much they spend, you know, take even PSG or Real Madrid, you know, you can spend a lot of money, but it doesn't guarantee trophies. And so you need to be able to find competitive edge even at that top end of the game. <clears throat> and you're right. I think Liverpool and Man City have done that really well over the last five years or so. Uh, Liverpool, particularly in selling players and, and getting huge revenues for players that they then reinvest in the team pretty well. And Man City aren't necessarily signing, you know, ready-born, ready-made superstars when they when they sign players like Rodri into their team. They're signing players who are gonna who are clearly very good and can improve, um, but they aren't kind of paying obviously top dollar for that. You know, the the what nine-figure values yeah. uh, for players. So yeah, there, there's there's merit there uh, to use data at the top and bottom end of of leagues. Yeah, very good. 
And and does this does this um, change the way that we think about coaches as well, and and perhaps um, clubs? I mean, I, I know it's the it's the it's the smart model, isn't it? Throughout Europe, to use a director of football and be able to um, uh, plan for your squad evolution, whatever happens with the coach. Um, but are we moving either ever more strongly uh, in that direction where perhaps a coach is just another employee of the club, much like any other player, and uh, and there's structures around the club that try and think longer term. I mean, I, I see from your product that you know one of the modules that you uh, you license out is is a squad evolution tracker and planner. Mm. Yeah, exactly. That's the clubs are trying to do that more and more, and I think um, it needs to start right at the top. Um, a club needs to be able to go. This is first and foremost. This is what we're trying to achieve. So, uh, if you take an Everton for example, at the moment, um, they might go, okay, well, in five years, we want to be pushing for top four football every year, maybe qualifying for the Champions League every one or two out of five years, and then from there you go, okay, well, what teams that achieve that? What do they tend to spend? What do they tend to bring in in income? What type of football do they play? What profile of squad do they have? Try and answer all those questions. Uh, and you can do that anecdotally, or we do a lot of that type of work um, with clubs all over Europe with different ambitions. And then you go, okay, well, we've established that. Then who's the head coach that fits into this model? And then you begin to be able to build everything else around that, that it doesn't matter who you've got at that head coach position because you know exactly what your end target is. And look, some head coaches might not work out. You know, I think Southampton had an excellent head coach hiring process um, when Les Reed was at the club and they hired, obviously, Mauricio Pochettino and, and Ronald Koeman. Um, but their latter hires haven't worked out. And I don't think their process has changed all that much. It's just that sometimes head coaches, when they move into a new environment, it doesn't always work out. But they've, you know, they've tried to maintain that, that bigger, bigger play. And I think in the long run, they'll probably be all right. Whereas the clubs that are scrambling around a little bit more are going to end up probably going backwards in a world where more and more clubs are thinking more strategically about the long term. Are there any, are any clubs you've spotted across Europe who, who've really taken this to the next level and are, are thinking in much more strategic ways about the development of their club? Yeah, I mean, Ajax are a really good example. I mean, we've been fortunate enough to work with them over the last 12 to 18 months. Um, and they, you know, they obviously got back into European football or Champions League football last season, uh, having had a bit of a break from the, the group stages and knockout stages. Um, and they, they have revenues that are less than the, the bottom club in the Premier League, right? So they need to be able to think long term and, and they, they think really hard about the makeup of their squad. So to what extent do they sign older players, which have done a little bit more recently, so Tadic and Blind and Huntelaars and players like that, versus making sure that they've got that pipeline through for younger players. And they're really diligent about their succession planning on that front and making sure that they have the right composition of the squad and they make sure that the way that they manage contracts and the kind of slipstream effect you have when you increase one player's contract and another player wants a pay rise as well. They, they do that all really, really well. I think it's no surprise that obviously over the last 18 months have been fantastic and, and really not just a joy to watch, but actually kind of really punching above their weight in terms of revenues. Yeah. Um, and yeah, some uh, really brilliant players uncovered um, at, at both the young and the, uh, the older, more experienced level that kind of seem to fit into a real plan. And, and uh, mm. it would seem that it's not by accident either so i mean i'm interested in this idea of um sort of differential values between players as well i mean we've always had this but the 
the prevailing wisdom, I guess, was that um, you wouldn't want a player that's too far out of the financial reach of others because it causes squad disharmony. But if you take this model that you're talking about, that um, you're trying to talk about the average uh, net points add or revenue mm. add of a player and you accept that some players are much better than others, can you play with that model? Or do we move to a model, I guess what I'm asking is, do we move to a model where there's a much more even spread of quality throughout a squad and therefore um, value assigned to it because because you're being smart about data? Or could you have extremes of of players on 10,000 a week and so on on 500,000 a week? Yeah, um, well, I guess one of the things we try and do is look to MLS and, uh, and the Chinese Super League or Qatar Stars League where you do get these more extreme examples of where you have these kind of outlier players in a squad and then you've got, you know, everyone else on peanuts compared to them. And one of the things you do notice about those leagues is that they do tend to be more inefficient in the way that they spend money. So we've got a ranking of, of teams in one big league table. We call it our World Super League. And it allows us to compare how good, say, an MLS team is relative to a team in England, relative to a team in Argentina, relative to a team in, um, in Italy, for example. And because we've got a sense of how much these clubs are spending on players and how much they're spending on transfer fees, we can get a gauge of how efficient or inefficient they are. Uh, and typically, MLS teams, we tend to find, are somewhat inefficient in the way that they spend their money. But if you look at a team like um, Atlanta, who haven't gone for the superstar model, they've been far more efficient um, than, than other teams in the league. So you can get these clues internationally about the way you go about it. And I think it's diff- one of the things that is hard to quantify, as you mentioned there, is the kind of disharmony that you might get from a squad if you do have those those real kind of uh, outlier players. And you even see that to a degree within within European football. So, yeah, it's it's definitely something that, that can be estimated uh, as a way to find an optimal route. Mm, fascinating, yeah. The, the Neymar problem, I guess. Mm, uh, yes. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the States, and uh, especially in Seattle, so I suppose the Sounders mm. are my uh, second team, uh, MLS champions this year. Um, and they've sort of gone for the superstar model. It kind of, it, since since we are on MLS, where where does that where do MLS teams tend to rank in your global super league then? Because to my eyes, and this is without any data, it looks about sort of mid championship level. Um, but, yeah, that's uh, pretty much pretty much bang on where, where we have the, the top teams. I have to say, um, so yeah, there's Seattle, Atlanta, New York Red Bulls. Historically, we've rated around kind of middle bottom half championship level um and that's why someone like Dick Almiron who's kind of really the big first big sale from MLS um it's kind of like a player who's standing out in the championship at a mid mid table low mid table level making a step up to Premier League and that's always a challenge that's a step up it's not always easy to do that even for a championship player so when you're moving across borders and 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 so on it becomes maybe even a bit more of a challenge but but it was doable, and I think he's probably done all right um, at, at Newcastle. Uh, but there is a big spread in, in MLS, right? The worst teams in MLS, and some of them have been bad for quite a while now, are probably you know close to kind of League Two level. Um, so you do get this big spread, and, and and that's one of the things. If you're scouting a league, it's really important to know not just what the average team in the league is, but how good are the the good teams and how good are the bad teams. Right. Another leagues that are up and coming where you see the uh, the level um, uh, rising fast? Yeah, good question. Um, I think probably, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. Um, I think Belgium has been, and it's obviously attracted a lot of interest recently because of the quality of the players 
that's in the Belgian national team. Uh, but the, the broadcast rights in Belgium have gone up quite a lot over the last decade. Uh, they've innovated quite a lot with their league format, uh, almost to an incomprehensible degree. But the broadcasters do seem to like it because it's attracted more people to watch the games and uh, more people to pay the s- subscriptions there. Uh, and so with that, you found uh, a, a reasonable rise in the quality there. But but I think the main trend that you're finding in in European football at the moment, certainly, is that the big five leagues are generally pulling away from the the rest of the European leagues, and that's that's a kind of that's a bit of a concern uh, personally because I think it's a real shame that you have teams like Ajax or even Celtic or Anderlecht who are kind of trapped within their domestic economies and they they don't have access to these big five leagues. So, yeah, it's it's a bit of a challenge for these leagues. They're seeing stagnating revenues, uh, but a couple of the ones that are innovating are finding ways ways out of that. Yeah, fascinating. So, so where, where what's the next step for um, this this kind of analytics in football, and and where are you taking your company? Yeah, so I think um, for us, it's really about you know we kind of have a bigger vision of changing the conversation within the industry, so changing the way that this industry th- thinks, and and helping teams win by outthinking rather than outspending. You know, we have this kind of passion about. If you, if you win by outwitting someone or outthinking someone, it's, it's almost more fun than just having spent more money than them. Uh, so for us, we like to work really double down with a couple of teams that we work with and really try and provide them with competitive edge um, and try and s- solve all those things that you hear all the time in the media when you're chatting with your mates that you're not quite sure is true or not, uh, but you want to be able to test it and work it out whether it's important. So we want to try and do that and obviously try and, in that uncover what's the real value of players what's the real value of coaches you know what's the risk if we really play young players in our team and give them a chance just try and help teams i guess find some kind of signal through all that all that noise from fans and and the media and so on um so it's it's a lot of fun um and i I wouldn't swap it for anything uh, but it's a real challenge as well because it's it's just such a popular and well-known industry yeah so have you got a copy of uh, Football Manager 2020 and have you won with Haverhill uh, <laughs> so far? Or no, your, not... uh, minor league team is? No, I haven't played Football Manager for years. I have to say the game is, is incredible. And actually, I saw Miles Jacobson mm-hmm. last week as the creator of the game and they're just going from strength to strength. It's, it's an absolutely phenomenal game and I would uh, there's a lot in there that I would love to apply all these kind of principles of how best to run a football club. But unfortunately, just don't have the time. I know, I bet. Uh, perfect. Well, look, um, fascinating conversation. Um, I think it's a really interesting area. We shall be uh, watching it closely, I think. Uh, and um, uh, I'm sure there'll be some moves in the uh, January transfer window that you've uh, applied some data and some thinking around, uh, no doubt. And um, yeah, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Great. Thanks for chatting. Brilliant stuff. Um, it, many thanks to Omar for uh, for ha- agreeing to talk to us. It's uh, it's much appreciated. Time is much appreciated. All right. So, do we have anything else to say? I think, I think we're an hour and twenty something minutes into this pod. You know, we, we we love to give you good content here. Yeah, I really liked the city game. We'd really love to give you good content. So, if you can tell us, you know, how we do that, we'd, we'd also <laughs> appreciate that. Um, I really liked the city game. That's just what I wanted to say. It was nice when we beat them. Andy Mitten shot something from, I guess, from the press box, but he he had his camera trained on the United fans uh, as the full-time whistle approached. And the limbs, the limbs in that stand. 
at the, as the whistle blew for full time. You know, when you just wish that you'd been somewhere, that was a real one of those moments where like, oh, there is literally nowhere on earth that would have been better in that 30 seconds than in that paddock of United fans. It was very good. And Oli walked off the, the pitch shaking his fist at Alex Ferguson. Yeah, the, uh, one for the yeah, old man. The, uh, how am I doing boss meme brought to life. Um, I know we've kind of done like plugs and stuff in, uh, in our little bumpers in the, in the ads, but I just wanted to say, give us a follow on Instagram in particular, NQAT pod on Instagram where I'm doing a bunch of live stuff. So like before games, when the team comes out and at halftime and after games, I'm not necessarily going to be able to do it for, for every game, but I'll do it whenever I can. So if you like that sort of thing, then, uh, then get involved over there. That's great. Yeah, I I tried doing one. It looked like a hostage video, as you called it. So I won't be doing that anymore. Not my forte. I'd rather stay behind the <laughs> microphone. Thanks. Um, I, I think you could be really good at it with a bit of practice, Ed, but that's another conversation. Perhaps it's an off-air conversation. All right. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. We'll be back. Uh, Patreon backers, stay tuned. Everyone else will be back with another one of these. Uh, probably a dramatically shorter one of these after the Alkmaar game on Thursday. Bye now. Push for that.